Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that we are able to gather here. We thank you, God, that you are the one who is the author and finisher of our faith, that this plan is your plan, that we get to participate in it. And I pray that we would understand it greater, that we would treasure it, that we would leave here in wonder and awe at the salvation that you provided in your son. We pray, God, that you would give us confidence about our future. We would not live in fear. That we would live in the peace that we know that you are keeping us and watching over us. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, in John's Revelation, we've been studying for some time, took a couple of weeks break. But in this study, we've seen Jesus as the revealer and the revealed. Uh, In chapter 1, we saw him as the reigning Lord of the universe and the Lord of his church. In chapters 2 and 3, he speaks to the church and he commends them for what they're doing right and confronts them for what they're doing wrong. He is Lord. He is the one watching over. He is in control. He is in charge of his church. In chapter 4, we are taken into the throne room. John is carried up into heaven. He sees the one on the throne and he sees him reigning and he sees a response of worship. In chapter 5, we understand that chapter 4 was the setting. We saw him on the throne. Now in chapter 5, we're uh, before the throne and we see that the one on the throne is holding a scroll. And uh, the scroll's uh, sealed with seven seals. And the question in heaven was, uh, who can open the scroll? And no one was found worthy. And then all of a sudden the camera turns and you see there is a lamb who was slain who is worthy to open the scroll. He's also presented as a lion. And he comes before the one on the throne and he takes the scroll. And what we find out is after he does that, the heaven again bursts forth with joy. They are filled with thanksgiving. Why? I think because the scroll is kind of understood in the scripture as God's plan of judgment and redemption, which has been set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection, but is yet to be completed. And so they're longing for all the promises of God to find their uh, fulfillment in Christ. And they're wanting to see all these things enacted. And so Jesus is worthy and he is able and he is capable of doing that. Now, what you see in chapter 6 is that the seals began to be broken. And as they are broken, what we see is the judgment of God coming out and and falling upon uh, uh, the world, if you you might say. In the first part of chapter 6, the the believing and unbelieving world experienced those. But with two different purposes. It is judgment for the wicked. It is, uh, uh, it's really to build up or strengthen or mature the righteous. At the end of chapter 6, we see that this judgment for the, the righteous is only temporary. And that God is preserving and, 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 and creating his people into the people that they need to be. But ultimately, at the end of chapter 6, we see that the wicked will be finally and fully judged. Now... If those people uh, that were hearing this or reading this and they're in the midst of all this, it's kind of like it's overwhelming. If you're reading it and you actually believe these things will take place, you understand that, that sometimes when you hear about this judgment, even though you say we will not fully and finally be judged, you understand that trouble is there and the difficulties that they're facing. And it's almost as if they need to take a breath 
And when they stop and take a breath, God speaks to them through John. And it's it's this moment to stop and say, hold on just a second. Let me give you a little better understanding of the, the hope the righteous have. The hope that the church has. So in the midst of all this trouble, in the midst of all this judgment, what chapter 7 is, a lot of people would say, is an interlude. It is a stop to explain. You stop and explain what is taking place from a different vantage point. And so that's what we'll see today in chapter 7. In chapter 7, we see that God is able to seal His servants and protect them from all danger, winning praise from them. You could break it down in this way. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 is the sealing of the saints. And verses 9 through 17, the saints worship God. So what we'll see is, and you see this throughout the Bible... God will do something. God will speak. God will unveil his plan. And, the, and, and as he does, and, and you experience that, the response is worship. And we see that kind of over and over throughout the Bible. And I think that's what we see here. And so I hope this will be helpful for you. Now, if you're taking notes and thinking about this, you might make a couple of notes. Chapter 9, verse 4, and chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Both deal again with what we see in the first part of chapter 7, this 144,000. And so in 9 4, we see those who are sealed are not harmed. In 14 1 through 5, this group stands with Jesus on Mount Zion. So this is a chapter for the, belie- for the believer to give great comfort about the future, about the present about your hope, about what you're secure in, of all those things. This is, is one of those chapters that in the midst of all the things that people say sometimes, Revelation, it scares me. I don't really like to read it. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of judgment. In the midst of that, this is like an interlude to say, hold on just a second. You want to get a glimpse of things, how they really are for the people of God, regardless of what it looks like in the present. This is how it really is going to shake out for the people of God. So you can imagine the the wonder, the amazement, the joy that they felt as they see this unfold and then they burst forth with joy, you might say, as a small little church in the first century, as they're thinking about what's going on in heaven, it encourages them about what's going on in the moment for them and what will be their future. One other thing. There also seems to be, uh, like what you'll see is a lot of counterfeits in the Bible. The enemy uses this number of the beast, you'll see, 666. It's a counterfeit. The, The 666 was something to like allow people at some level to enjoy some benefits on this earth. This picture here is the eternal benefits for the people of God. Really wonderful. I mean, really, if, I hope, you know, sometimes, again, we said this, when we study the Revelation, people can spend their time thinking about all different things, and they could walk out always scratching their heads and miss the point. And we're, we're going to try not to allow you to do that, okay? To miss the point of what this is all about. So, chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. 
And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then there's a list of those tribes. Now, I told Lanny, you read it, and then I'll not read it so that I don't have to, like, you know, mess up any of the things. I was checking off. Did he read that? No, I'm just kidding. But, but I think it's important. We see that on display here. And I, and I think that as you're looking at this, uh, we remember, really, in the first part of chapter 6, we said that God's judgment between, is between the first and second coming of Christ is used to punish the wicked and purify the righteous. In the last part of chapter 6, we see the final judgment. In here, only the wicked will face this judgment and the righteous will be saved fully and finally. So that's kind of in my mind as I'm sitting down and reading this. And you're seeing here this picture in verse 1. And you see these four angels standing at the four corners. Uh, it might be a way of saying north, east, south, and west. And they're holding back the winds. What are the winds? I think these are the winds of judgment. And they're holding those back. Notice not even the trees are blowing. It's like a, a, a kind of a scene of being calm and being kept. And, and, and there's this idea here that they are, are, are not going. It's, it's one of those things where we're going to make sure and ensure everything is right with my people before judgment falls. So if you, you might say it this way and just kind of help you looking at 6 and 7, that chapter 6 has given us the progress of history that fulfills what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. And then chapter 7 gives us another perspective on that history, dealing mainly with how God's people are protected. So you just got to understand, and I think I told you this before, but it's not like if you were reading... For instance, if you had a, a little child and you said, I want to give the, a picture for every year that they, every birthday, a photo of them. And I get a little photo album together and I say, year one, year two, year three. I'm watching the progression. But if I were to say, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to have a bunch of hodgepodge pictures that present uh, different aspects of their life growing up. I think of that kind of like in the Revelation. I don't think it's this is year one, this is year two, this is year three. What it is is a lot of snapshots in order to kind of present to you a, a really part of the story and, and allowing you to see how it unfolds. So I think that's how we should read the Revelation and we'll talk about that further as we move forward. Now, what you notice here is they're holding back again this judgment in, in the picture that you'll see later is in chapter 8, verse 7 and 8, the judgments that they're holding back are going to come together in 8, 7 and 8. And so in chapter 7, you see this kind of, this pause, this waiting to seal the servants of God. Now, what do we see from this? One thing is, we see is that God is sovereign over history. God reigns over history and even the judgments that fall upon men. God's plan is, is coming to pass. God is keeping His people in the midst of this. In all of these things, God is working. But He's not just bringing about the judgments or holding them back. He is protecting His people. Throughout the book, we see John uh, in the early church all of his people between the first and second coming, they're living in tribulation. But there's this idea here in this text is even though you're facing these sufferings in the present, God is keeping you. God is watching over you. 
You are enduring difficulty, but God is with you and He is preserving you. Really, the idea in the Scripture is you will not suffer beyond what you are able. God will keep His people until the end. I think the idea here is He protects them spiritually. He watches over their faith. He guards them. And this guarding, this sealing that we're talking about, I think very closely is tied to the sealing of the Spirit. God is present with His people. That's what we've seen throughout the Revelation. He is with them. He has sealed them. They are His. He owns them. He has stamped them as His own. No one can take them away from Him. And, and, and that's very important for us. It's a guarantee of our future. Some people think that we come in and out of relationship with God. But I think throughout the Bible, and we see that here, that God has sealed His people. He has chosen His people. He will keep His people. He sustains His people. He blesses His people. And no one can take them away from Him. All the winds of adversity in this present age, all of hell coming against them, God is watching over His people. And He watches them to the very end. He's guarding them. He has said, these are mine. In a way you could say, they are my assets. I possess them. I made them. I created them. I recreated them. I caused them to be born again. I am the author of their salvation. I will finish it. What the Bible says in Philippians 1, it's He who began a good work in you will bring it to pass until the end. The Bible certainly says, work out your salvation of the fear and trembling. But what does it say after that? It is God who is at work in you. Both to will and work to His good pleasure. God initiates relationship and He sustains relationship. And He fulfills all the promises of that relationship. He is a covenant keeping God. He has set His covenant love on His people. He has sealed them and He will keep them to the end. The emphasis is on God. Right here. God seals His people. He is actively protecting them. My greatest confidence in this life when I face temptation, when I face trials, when I face all types of difficulty... My greatest comfort is not, and I've said this before, is not in the strength of my grip, but His. You understand that? When John 10, he says, no one is able to snatch you out of my Father's hand. That, that's, that's one of those things where he says, and not only he says, out of my hand or my Father's hand. What is he saying? He's saying, I keep my people. I'm the one who's watching over them. I've sealed them. And I will sustain them. That is so important for us. That motivates us in the present that we are not so much dependent upon us, but Him. That is the life of faith. We're not trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in Him and what He has done and what He is doing. I might even, I think it's important to say in Hebrews 12 speaks of this. 
The, 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 the thing for me is that if I'm his child, I, you might say to someone, listen, if you're truly his child, you will not be lost, but you may be disciplined like crazy in the present. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. If you are his child, you will always be his child and he will make sure that you live in a way that would honor him. He will keep you to the end. Ultimately, he is bringing you to himself. He isn't conforming you to the image of his son. And there's great hope here. I think this ceiling is trying to help you see how God in the midst of all the trials, the temptations, and the difficulties the church faces... God is with them, He is for them, and He is keeping them. And they may not feel like they're going to make it, but He ensures that they will. I think that's what this is about. You see in this text, this 144,000 seal from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Um, what's interesting about this text is, well, one, some people say, oh, this is an ex- literalistic people that see this in a literal way, would say this means there's 144,000 here sealed. 144,000 exactly. There are, and, and they would go on, oftentimes people that see it that way are in a group of, of people that would say, what this is, chapter 7 is picturing, and they would look at Daniel and put this together, is basically, uh, this is Jewish people uh, during the seven years of tribulation who are come to faith and are kept. Um, the figurative type reader, the one who reads uh, the way I would read it, is I think this is speaking of the people of God between the first and the second coming I think the idea here, when you say that Israel of God, when he's speaking of them being the children of Israel, I think that you see hints of that all throughout the New Testament and in the Revelation that the, the, the Israel fulfilled is the church. And that there's this kind of picture here where he is saying this, this new covenant people of God, which we'll see in verse 9, made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation, these people... These people, this what he calls the 144,000, are sealed and kept. It means every number, every one of them will be kept until the end. That's what I think this is about. I think that's what it's pointing to. There's a couple of things in this book where you say, well, this doesn't look like the list in the Old Testament. John does some different things with that. And we're not going to go into all the details of that. If you want to ask me about it later, that's fine. But I think it's just important. Like I said, you can either take it literally and say, where do these 144 exact number of people fit in? Or you could see it figuratively, which is the way I would read it. And I see it as God saying he has sealed and kept his people until the end and he will keep them. Now, I would also argue, we'll kind of keep moving, but I would also argue that when we read apocalyptic literature like we're reading in the Revelation, when we see numbers that are perfect, 12,000 times 12, 144,000, these exact numbers like that, or you see the number seven, like seven churches. I'm not saying there weren't seven churches, but those seven churches are kind of like a way of saying the complete church, or you see the number 10. There's a lot of things when you're seeing that that are ideas of completion, and I think that's what is taking place here. Okay, so as we kind of, that again, 
different people have different views of that. That's just where I would see that. And I think that it's important to understand. Um, <clears throat> well, I, one other verse that I think kind of is helpful for this. There's a place in chapter 5, verse 5, where John heard that Jesus was a lion and then he saw a lamb in 5, 6. What, 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 was it the lion or the lamb? What's it presenting? What's it supposed to, what is it supposed to show us? What are we understanding about that? And I think in the same way we see this 144,000 and in verse 9 we'll see this innumerable multitude. I think we're talking about the same groups with different snapshots of them, with different emphasis for them. One other thing I'd say about this group of 12,000 times 12, it does remind you of Numbers chapter 2 when the children of Israel are about to go into the promised land, and they're set up in companies almost as if they're getting ready for battle uh, to go in victoriously. And then God brings these plague-like judgments uh, really on people. And so what you're going to see, even with this people of God here, is that God is bringing them all together, and then it's almost this idea where he is going to judge the rest. So he's sealing his people, separating them as his own, watching over them. He has set them up, and now... He is going to judge uh, their enemies, if you will. Okay, so. Do you see yourself as belonging to this company of people? And what would that mean? Do you see yourself among his people, numbered, marked out, and kept? Sealed. Do you see yourself that you're God's possession in this way? That he has owned you, he's watching over you, he's protecting you, he's keeping you. You may say, I I never saw myself in that way. I've never seen God's commitment to me in that way. I've never seen that kind of value placed upon his people individually and corporately. If you haven't, I think you may have lived a lot in fear. Or saying, well, maybe my life's not worth much. But he is saying, I'm the king. I've sealed you. You're mine. You're my possession. Gives you great value, worth, comfort, security, all those things. I think the early church reading this would say, stop for a moment. Are we that secure? And John says, he says that you are. This is how secure you are. This is how loved you are. This is, this is what it means to be in His family. Your most fearful night, when you think, I may die for the faith tonight, this is the security you have. You've been marked out as mine. This world and the winds of this age, they may seem like when you're looking out there, they're really strong. But know this, you will be protected. You're in the ark. You're with Jesus. He's kept you. You've been sealed. I don't have a strong grip. I can't hold on. I don't think I can succumb. You know, I'm going to fall to that temptation. And he's like, no, I've marked you out. I've sealed you. I've kept you. Let that flow over you just for a moment that you see that. It's too dark. It's too broken. It's too scary. It's too, it hurts too much. I don't know how I'm going to be able to continue. And he says, you're sealed. You're protected. You're watched over. What would be the response? you really believe that? Maybe 7, 9 through 17. The saints worship God. 
After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels who were standing around the throne and around, um, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You notice here, this people of God is a great multitude. The first group in verses 1 through 8 is very specific when dealing with the sealing of the 144,000, which I think points to security and victory. Now we see the worldwide impact of the gospel, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Look back at 617, chapter 6, verse 17. The great day is the great day of judgment. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand the great day of wrath? Who do you think will stand? It's those who have been sealed by the Lord, who have been clothed in white robes, who are trusting in salvation that comes from the Lamb. Those are the ones who will stand. The idea again of sealing is the idea of the Spirit, I believe, sealing us and keeping us. And you notice here, these saints are now in heaven. They are before the throne and before the Lamb. They've persevered through the great tribulation. They were secure because God made them His own. The Spirit proved that the Spirit worked in them. And the promise was there and they persevered by His power. The right white robes remind us that they overcame. In the midst of all the struggles that they faced, in the midst of all the difficulty, He has sealed them, He has kept them, and now they are with Him. The palm branches that they're holding here kind of reminds you of Jesus in His triumphal entry when He goes into Jerusalem and they are praising Him as, as the one that was promised, the King that had come, and they're praising Him. And now we see what we, what we saw in part there, we see in the fullness here. You know what's different about those and the ones in Jesus' day? These people will never turn away. They are with Him. They're sealed by Him. They have met their King. Notice what they're saying. See, I, I think this is a real big issue that people have to think about. But where, where do, who, who owns salvation? Let me ask you this. Who owns your salvation? Who, who, who? They say salvation belongs to our God. Have you ever met someone that, that I've, you kind of thought deep down they think they deserve their salvation? Deep down, they say, well, I'm persevering. Look how I raised my family. Look at how good my kids are doing. Look at what I've done. Look at this. Look at that. I have all the evidence that I'm the greatest person in the world. God will surely accept me. Look how good I am. They're really arrogant people. Often you like think, where's the humility here? I mean, are you kidding me? I deserve it. He owes that to me. 
Is that what the saints are saying in heaven? We were good. We were the best. We knew it all. We did it all right. God surely accepts us. Head lifted high. Is that what you see? They say salvation belongs to our God. They are not worshiping themselves because they got themselves there. They're worshiping God who sustained them and kept them to the end. It is not their faith. Their faith is even a gift from God. It is not their perseverance. That's a gift from God. Everything, your salvation is based upon God and God alone. And the Lamb. Jesus did not come down from heaven to this earth to to live a perfect life and die a sinner's death on the cross because you could save yourself. You could keep yourself. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came because you could not. Because the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. None who understands, none who seeks for God. They've all turned aside. The Bible is one big book that says man in his total depravity has failed. He cannot keep himself. He will not keep himself. He does not seek after God. He does not love God. And God in his infinite mercy and grace sent his son to live the life they could not live, to die the death that they deserve. And then he sent the spirit to awaken them to these spiritual realities of their bankruptcy. And he helps them see and understand what Christ has done. They trust in him. And by his grace, they are moved forward step after step after step. So that when they get there, when they make it in the end, they don't show up saying, boy, I did good. I did good. Did you remember? I did more good than I did bad. And be like, that's not gospel. The good news is that we are bad and that God is good and that He sent His Son to save bad people. Here, when you're looking at this, you see these people actually seeing and understanding that in its fullness and they burst forth in praise. They are not crediting themselves with overcoming. God sealed them. And they state plainly that salvation belongs to God. It is not due to their right choices, the virtue of their character, the superiority of their wisdom, or the strength of their will. Salvation belongs to God. God saved them. And so they praise Him. That's shocking. Is it not? It is so amazing. And I think that is why we would say love so amazing, so divine, demands my all, my life, my everything. Verse 12. Saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In case you're confused, who is praised here? Whose wisdom is on display? Whose power is on display? Who is the one that we are hoping in here? It's not ourselves. It is is the one on the throne and the Lamb. A lot of arrogance and pride would be dealt with if this was rightly understood. They do not credit themselves for overcoming. God sealed them and salvation belongs to Him. 
thought it was interesting. Josh Tucker, who was sharing with us last week, who's a church planter, uh, shared one of the verses that really transformed his understanding of the gospel. And he said that Romans 4, 5 really just hit him. As you read the flow of Romans 1 through 3, you're saying, all humanity's lost, there's no hope. How can we be saved? And Josh said, when he read Romans 4, 5, it says, and the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We trust in Christ and Christ alone. Verse 13, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What's he saying? Their hope is in the Lamb, in the death of the Lamb, in the one who died on their behalf. That is what they're hoping in. That is why they survived. That is why they're sustained. That is why they were kept to the end. What is the tribulation here, or the great tribulation? I think the tribulation is something John was facing. He said that in John chapter 1. I think he said in John chapter 1, 9, that they were participating as the church in it. At that moment, I think he says in John cha- I mean in Revelation chapter 2, he says... Tribulation is part of what the people of God are facing. And I think here we see tribulation. Now you might say, hey, the great tribulation, is that something distinct? Well, there may be at some level, and I think that's something to say, but there may be a point or a place in the very end where it seems to escalate. But the idea to me throughout is that we are living in tribulation between the first and second coming of Christ. And those who have trusted in Christ, His person and work, They are the ones who will be saved in the end. Those are the ones who are sustained. Those are the ones that are not only saved in the, like you might say, in the eternity, but they are saved in the present. God is keeping His people who are trusting in His Son for the salvation that He has promised in Him. So I think that's what we're doing. And I think we would ask this morning, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your ability to stand before God? Or are you trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus? Are you trusting in your ability to keep yourself from falling away? Are you trusting in God who seals His servants? What are you hoping in? What are the saints here hoping in? Themselves or in God and what He has accomplished through His Son? Verse 15, 16, and 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You could spend a long time thinking about this. But you see, one, they're serving Him in the temple. They are in His presence. The idea of the temple is that God dwells with His people He is with them. They are with Him. They're experiencing the blessing of being able to serve Him and to be intimately connected to Him. They have no fear or hunger. You see that here. Or the scorching heat. The idea here is that all the things, all their fears have been done away with. They have tremendous hope in this moment because they know that that, that no longer are they facing Or will they face for the first century church the difficulties of just trying to survive in this life? 
They are kept and held onto and watched over and protected. And ultimately, they will find themselves in a place where they'll never thirst again. Notice verse uh, 17. The lamb is in the midst of the throne and, 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 and he will be their shepherd. You think of Psalm 23, this kind of reminds you, this also reminds you of a passage in John where Jesus is guiding them to the springs of living water to give them something that will, they'll never thirst again. And he wipes away every tear from their eyes. Every fear, every anxiety, every struggle, every divided kind of thing in their life, every time that they think about all of their shame and all of their guilt and all of the wars that they face and all the difficult relationships, all those things, everything that causes tears in this life, every strain is gone. So here, this morning, are you sealed? What does it look like to be sealed? Well, I think in this context, it looks like this. You are trusting in the Lamb who was slain on your behalf. You are hoping in Christ. You're not just hoping in Him in this sense where you say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but you have rested your hope in Him. And really what we'll see throughout is you are walking with Him and seeking to walk in a way to be pleasing to Him. You are trusting in what He's accomplished, so you're not trying to work your way there. You are trusting in what He has done, and out of gratitude you're serving Him. And you're seeing along the way how He strengthens you, and He's working in you, and He's accomplishing that work on your behalf. Are you among the sealed? Are you resting in Christ? Are you trusting in Him? Is He your hope? Or are you outside of Him? Outside of His care? Are you not His possession? Are you not one who has truly rested in Christ and repented and believed the gospel? If so, all those fears that the church may have struggled with in that moment are yours, but they're more real than the church's fears. They are reality. So I ask you this morning, if you have not trusted in the Son, I pray that you would turn to Him. He is your hope for the future in this life and in the one to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, the confidence, the wonder of the confidence that You give Your people. How You you bless them. Man, we, we are overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy You've shown to us. I just pray that we as your people would be overwhelmed with joy as we think about being sealed and kept and secure and to the end. Lord, we want to praise you. We know salvation belongs to you and you alone. We take no credit for our standing with you. The credit lies in Christ and in Christ alone. His righteousness put to our account. Our sin given to him. That is our hope. In Christ we pray. Amen. If you would stand with me at this time.